Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Welcome back to the this- Addiction Connection. And did you... I'm going to bring one thing up before we start. <laughs> okay. I don't know if you noticed what big number we're kind of heading towards for our downloads. Almost 19,000. No, it's over that. Heading towards 20. Is it already? Yep. I didn't haven't looked at it in a week, but thanks everybody. But this is episode number 69 and today we are going to chat a little bit about stigma. Yeah, this is more just a conversation. It's not so much a big teaching thing, although kind of it a really teaching is thing. a teaching thing. I think you know it's something we just bump into so much, and it can be just such a thing that bugs you. I was gonna say something funny, but I didn't. So anyway, do I we want to talk about the history first, or do we want to go through the definition? I think we got to just throw the definition out there. Oh well, there's a few. My favorite. Can I read my favorite? Or maybe we should do history. You pick. Okay, so. Anyway, it was first known, and the first use of the word stigma was in about 1593. Man, in case that's were, important. Things were bad way back then. Yeah, that that's a little earlier than I would have thought. Yeah, but and I think it's interesting that it uh, it kind of came from a Latin word stigmat, or st- stigma meaning mark or brand. I think that's kind of brutal. Or the Greek state stizen stizen. To tattoo. So, again, a mark. A mark. A brand. Mm, and there you go. Yeah. In early English, uh, you know, first it was kind of referred to as like a scar left by a hot iron, a stigma in English. That It kind of meant that you got branded. Right. Slave thing. Oh, the first person said you have experienced the infliction of stigmata is St. Francis of Assisi in the 13th century, yet that would be before 1593. They just maybe didn't call it that yet. Interesting. Okay, so my my favorite definition, it's kind of half on there, but a strong lack of respect for a person or a group of people or or an opinion because of a bad opinion of them because they have done something society does not approve of. Well, that pretty much does it. I'm voting for that one. All right, so why is stigma bad? I mean, stigma is really something that I think we'll get to some of these interesting statistics here in a second, but I think where it's really bad, obviously, besides just the personal emotions of a person, is it prevents people, when we're talking about use disorders, we'll kind of focus on use disorders, it really is a reluctance to seek help or treatment. People are embarrassed or ashamed because they're going to be stigmatized. Yeah, but then from the other angle... People who have stigma don't give the care probably that they should be giving, right? So correct. the barrier to care is the fact that often... Even the providers. Providers do not feel that this patient is deserving of being treated. Uh, and so it really goes both ways. It's the stigma that keeps people away. And then it's the stigma which keeps them from getting the care that everyone else is getting. Well, and not only Carrie, I'm going to jump to one of these statistics because it makes sense. It's not only their care, but it's also all aspects of their life. So there was a few studies done on this. 90% of individuals are unwilling, if they have a say, to have a person 
marry person with substance use disorder. So marry someone with substance use disorder and welcome that person with substance use disorder into their family. 90% of people are anti the idea of having like their child bring that person into the family. Even compared to people with just mental illness, 59% of people say they don't prefer that. Yeah. 90%. So it's, it's not quite half, but it's heading that direction. So it's almost, it's, it's like 40% higher and, with SUDs. And then when you're looking at employment, even though you can't obviously terminate someone who has a substance use disorder once they're already employed, the whole American with Disabilities Act, but if you know about it ahead of time, 62% of people are willing to work with someone who has a mental illness, but only 22% of people are willing to work with someone with a use disorder. Yeah. And I think the same thing goes <clears throat> if you're looking at housing. Mm-hmm. And then this is a group and we work with Ryan Kelly, some, and he always talks about patients who are challenged for housing and how it's so difficult to get them housing. And 62% of people, nope. or excuse me, 54% of people believe landlords should be allowed to deny housing to people with drug addiction. So people feel more than half the people feel like it's okay to say, no, you have a use disorder. I'm not renting to you. Well, and it kind of comes down to that whole they can't get better. Like this is a choice. This is what they're choosing to do because only three in 10 people. So 30% of people actually believe recovery is possible. Yeah. Which is amazing. So I think that, that really, I mean, in our everyday lives, I mean, this, this affects not just their access to care, it's their housing, it's their, their employment. So it's everything. But then even just in their social lives, they feel bullying, violence, harassment, and all those, this huge thing of isolation because not only are they not welcomed into society from any type of, you know, adulting, but then when they are out in society, they're treated poorly. And this is really, I think, difficult to understand when we look at how common it is. Even if you look at, for instance, people with alcohol use disorders, um, you know, one in 10 kids come from a household with, where at least one parent as an alcohol use disorder. So this is, I mean, the, the, this is such a common issue of people have use disorders uh, and, and it's 10% of people, 10% of people grow up in that. Well, and if you look at other substance use disorders, so everything that isn't alcohol, one in 35 kids live in a household with at least one parent with something that isn't alcohol. So overall, one in eight kids are affected, grow up in a house with somebody has some type of a substance use disorder. Yeah, and so the reality is these are these are kids who have high A scores, who are challenged to get housing, whose parents may or may not work, and who probably have significant barriers to get health care. Right. So Isn't it's that crazy. One yeah, in eight. One in eight. That's like the average classroom I would think in public schools is right around that. Twenty four. Twenty four. I mean three kids in each class. Yeah. And I would argue it's it's probably much higher than that. And I would also agree. Yeah. 39, or excuse me, almost 39% of kids were removed from their homes related to substance use disorders. And this was as of like 2015. And when you compare that to 2000, the year 2000, it was only 18 and a half. So 40% of kids who, you know, enter, enter social services, have to go into foster care, are because of substance use disorders in the home. And actually, if you look at just our state, it's closer to 50%. I found it interesting that Iowa, which is mostly rural, is up at 60%. Which, yeah, which is I, I think it's a much more rural. And if you look at, for instance, Wisconsin, North Dakota, 
also pretty rural for the most part. It's much lower at 31 to 40%. Yeah, South Dakota right up there close to that 60 again. Yeah. But when you look at under the age of one, so we're talking the newborns who's born into families like that up to age one, Minnesota, over 60% of babies removed from their homes is related to substance use disorder, higher than the national average. Wow. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't think that, you know, if we compared ourselves to a place like, you know, Chicago or, you know, Illinois, which tends to be much more big city. But when, course, you, when I looked at, you know, I only really focused on the ones like that touch Minnesota. But really, if you compare to the whole country, Minnesota is kind of right up there. Yeah. And, you know, wonder, I wonder, though, is is that because we're noticing it more? And maybe well, in other states, they don't necessarily notice it more? Or is this because of the mandatory reporting we used to have in our state? Yeah, I think now we are noticing more. So I wonder if, what do you think in the next few years, now that the mandatory reporting during pregnancy has gone essentially away, do you think our numbers are going to drop? Yes, I do. And in our state? So and, we won't know what to think. We won't know what to think. And, and related to that... Um, in Minnesota, 6% of women who enter treatment are actually pregnant, which is, again, above the national average of a little over 4%. So, again, that would be going back. Are they presenting themselves because they really want help, or is there, are they presenting because they're, they got turned in? Yeah. Now, if you look at jails, and I think that's, I mean, I think we all know this, that when you look at two-thirds of the kind of local county-type jails, or excuse me, two-thirds of people in local jails or county jails have substance use disorders, and I think our experience has been that. Right, and they make up for a quarter to a third of the recidivism. These patients, they, they said in this article, they the recidivism of that 25 to 36% was coming in and out at least three times in a year. Yeah, I'm just going to say it. I would say most of the people that I see in a jail situation who have a substance use, or, or use disorder of some type are in the wrong place. They should be in treatment. Well, and, we, we're putting them away. We're punishing them for their use disorder. Well, in most in, in most charges, can go back to robbery because I needed money to help my disease or yeah. X Y Z, or I had a battery charge because I was under the influence and got in a fight. Yeah. Or and of course pr- prisons. Very similar. This this was close to the level of where I anecdotally think when we're like in and out of jails. 65%, if you looked at prison, 65% have an active severe use disorder and 20% have a mild to moderate. 85%. That, it's really pretty amazing. Right. The state of Washington. The, these are going to be kind of confusing since I wrote these down. Yeah, so and I, I can me. see they're confusing right away. So... In the state of Washington, they did this kind of study, and they looked at 1999 to 2000, and there were 76,000 people who were released from their prison system, and 14% of them, 14% of the 76,000, died of an opioid overdose within the first two weeks. Wow. And in 2018, they looked at... this was still Washington, 29 hospital pri- hospitalized prisoners. So in the year 2018, 29 of prisoners got admitted with fentanyl overdoses. So this is a whole article on how often drugs getting into the facility. Yeah, that goes back to our whole uh, 
our whole talk about packing and yeah, last week <laughs> you know, we we just gave that talk about swallowing packets of drugs, and yeah. and we've seen this where uh, you know two or three people on a pod suddenly overdose, uh, and somebody had something hidden somewhere. So yeah, common thing. And that's kind of state of California looked at kind of the same thing. In 2016, they had 29 fatal overdoses within their prison system. 2017, they had 40 fatal overdoses with like while they were in the prison. And the first 11 months of 2018, they were already up to 35. So an upgoing trend. They Gosh, there were so many articles on getting drugs into facility. We should almost do a whole talk on just ways to get substances into jail and prison. Yeah, and, you know, I, I talked to a guy last week, and he said that it's really how much you want to, what you've got to trade or spend, but you can get uh, pretty much any drug. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Not just the hooch. No, not making just hooch. <laughs> So should we talk about the language? Um, yeah. This is kind of one of your favorite topics. Yeah, I mean, this is just something that, that every day uh, I hear people kind of misuse terms. And, you know, there's just certain things, you know, we tend to really lean towards talking about recovery, and right. not sobriety. Uh, right. We tend to talk more about expected results of urine and not clean or dirty. Right. Uh, and I think most people in our who do our job try and... Stick with those terms, yeah. And it's interesting because you might hear patients use, I'm sober, my urine was clean and dirty. But I think unless you have a really good relationship with that patient, you know, it's it's important to really respect that. And I really like this, this top one that says addict versus a person with substance use disorder because... You know, this was a couple of years ago, really, the talk with diabetes even. You don't say you're a diabetic because you were not. Like, that is not your whole identity. You are a person with diabetes. Yeah. You know, so it's the same kind of thing. And, yeah, and patients say this all the time. I'm just an addict or they, they always kind of say it that way. And I think, you know, I often correct them. You know, I do. Um, no, you have the disease of addiction. Yeah, and look at it that way. When it goes back to the whole definition or what stigma can lead to is that it is even that personal, the, what is it, intrapersonal stigma is that you as a person with a use disorder feel that you'll never be able to succeed in situations or improve your situation. So really even changing the language the patients use can help motivate and give them hope. Well, and I think often when patients who are in recovery are in groups of people, People will talk about different substance uses, use disorders or different things in a real derogatory way. And often patients in recovery don't tell people. And imagine how they feel right. uh, as people are making fun of or using derogatory terms uh, towards patients with substance use disorders. So I think we always have to be careful. Uh, I think that when I think of all the different places we go and how many times people come up to me later and say, you know, you know my brother had a opioid use disorder, my sister you know, had an alcohol use disorder. And and clearly people have these conversations around them that are less than positive, should mm-hmm. I say that? so. And it can be that for the patient, especially like you had mentioned, the patient who's been in longer-term recovery or even a week, whatever, it almost is like, what's the point then? Everyone continues to label me as an addict for my use disorder 20 years ago, but I'm still an addict to them. Like, what's the point? Like, the, it's mm-hmm. almost like that people just don't feel like anybody can ever accept them for anything else. Yeah. So I think it is hard. I think often people uh, may seclude themselves a little more, avoid avoid these situations where people may talk about it 
because they are very self-conscious. And, uh, you know, I think we need to always be conscious of that ourselves. Right. And that's that whole only one in 10 people with substance use disorder get any type of treatment. Yeah. You know, it's like you mentioned mm-hmm. with, you know, healthcare professionals not giving the same level of care, patients being more reluctant because of their own self-stigma, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just to change a, a terminology, you know, things have kind of evolved with the world of, you know, MAT, medication-assisted treatment. The new terminology is MOUD, medications for opioid use disorder, because it's just kind of a adjunct. It's not the assisted it is treatment mood 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 <laughs> so, Gosh. so yeah it's the interrupting cow joke never mind yeah i get it um, i forgot to say moo yeah. so <laughs> so what's your number one thing kurt that you hear that really just like crawls your skin when you hear someone say it when it's a stigma type I, thing i i would have to say the word junkie uh i hate that and and I hear that sometimes, or just uh, I, I hate the word drunky. He's just a drunk, right? That one bugs me. I also hate when they say it's a choice. I hear it which all the time. It's not exactly like a direct, but like they chose to do this. That that hurts me. I also really hate the word addict most of the time. Yeah, and I think it's the lack of understanding. Sometimes people say, you know, they've just got to figure this out. <laughs> it's like okay, not quite that simple. Um, these are patients that need help, they need support, they need uh, resources. Mm-hmm. And so it's not about figuring it out or when are they going to figure it out. No, they, they've all figured it out. By the time they see you and I, uh, they clearly do not want to be in the situation they're in. They know that. Well, you know, and I think if you think back like a decade or so, maybe even more, I don't know, when they started to look at like the obesity epidemic and a person who fits that and was wanting help or wanting to go into like a Weight Watchers, for instance, not trying to use name brands. It just came to my head. If they got went there and they were like, you're fat, you, you know, you're like, they're not going to go back. Yep. And so I think patients will often, you know, whether it's social services, child protection, treatment, clinic, if they're, they're hearing those messages, I mean, they're not going to go back any more than the diabetic who's obese or the obese person trying to lose weight or the person at the gym when someone says, what are you here for? Yeah. And I think we see that uh, and we have seen that you and I uh, over the years, uh, what happens to our patients when they go to the ER and how they're treated. And I think some ERs are better than others, Mm -hmm. but um, the stigma that sometimes uh, in that quote, drug seeking crowd that, um, that the ER doesn't want to help us with. And, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that's uh, one of the things that really I struggle with. Yeah. Yeah. And and hospitalized patients who aren't treated for their use disorder while they're there uh, because it's not considered important when, in fact, it is uh, one of the most important things. Want to know one thing I always think of sometimes? No. I always don't. think of sometimes. No, I just said no. That was good. <laughs> I'm going to hear it anyway. When you get a phone call and you hear, well, their urine is dirty, it has. And I always want to be like, well, did they come in from the garden or where'd they get the dirt? Yeah. You must have had a dirty bathroom floor then because there shouldn't be dirt in their urine. Yeah. Yeah, that bugs me. <laughs> Maybe I'm too easy to get to. I don't know. But so, yeah. So <sighs> we are uh, strongly in the corner of using the appropriate terminology for patients uh, because that's more welcoming and that's how we keep patients in our programs and that's how we get them the help and the access to the resources that they need. 
Correct. It's not by pushing them out. Correct. Any any way you want to adjust what I just said? No, I'm I'm good. I'll let you have the final. Oh, I get the final word today. So Go we want to thank everybody for listening again. And as we near 20,000 downloads, we're pretty excited. That's been lots of fun. And uh, we appreciate that everyone listens. So have a good week. And we will speak with you next week. Yeah, look, we did three weeks in a row. Wow. To warm your soul, we offer you all you require with the rain, no sticks to light on fire. We hope you've got an appetite. We'll all be feasting here tonight. Round here, we love to be well fed. We got chicken bones and moldy bread. There's no place like Time has passed, we'll celebrate and raise a glass. We hope you brought some wine and beer, cause you won't be finding any here. And now it's time for singing songs. We hope that you would sing along if you can find some instruments each tune would play is 15 cents there's no need to go to sleep we don't plan to work